So this is from John Piper. If you have read his book, Don't Waste Your Life, then you will have heard this before. But I thought it just fits so beautifully with what we're going to be talking about this morning, and I thought I would use it as an opening illustration. So he wrote this. My father was an evangelist. When I was a boy, there were rare occasions when my mother and sister and I traveled with him and heard him preach. I trembled to hear my father preach. In spite of the predictable opening humor, the whole thing struck me as absolutely blood earnest. There was a certain squint to his eye and a tightening of his lips when the avalanche of biblical texts came to a climax and application. For me as a boy, one of the most gripping illustrations my fiery father used was the story of a man converted in his old age. The church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard and resistant. By by this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. At the end of the service, during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came and took my father's hand. They sat down together on the front pew of the church as the people were dismissed. God opened his heart to the gospel of Christ, and he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But that did not stop him from sobbing and saying, as the tears ran down his wrinkled face, and what an impact it made on me to hear my father say this through his own tears, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. This was the story that gripped me more than all the stories of young people who died in car wrecks before they were converted. The story of an old man weeping that he had wasted his life. In those early years, God awakened me God awakened in me a fear and a passion not to waste my life. The thought of coming to my old age and saying through tears, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, was a fearful and horrible thought to me. One day, each one of us will stand before the King of Kings and give an account for how we lived our lives. For unbelievers, they will be banished from the presence of God and thrown into the lake of fire. Because there was never any true mourning and repentance for their sin, they will experience the full wrath of God upon them. Lives wasted in sinful, selfish pursuits apart from God. Believers will likewise stand before the King of Kings, and they will be rewarded for the things they did in life that were pleasing to God. However, even believers can waste the lives that God has graciously graciously granted to them. And you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.15. He says that those whose works were not done for the glory of God, they will be burned up and he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So even believers, we will not experience the wrath of God. But if we live lives dominated by sinful, selfish pursuits, when we get to heaven, our deeds will be burned up. We will be there, but no rewards, nothing to lay at the feet of Jesus. To waste our lives would be a grievous loss. None of us desires to stand before our Savior and reflect on a life that was lived in sinful, selfish pursuits of our own desires. Truly, what a waste that would be. Instead, it should be our growing passion to forsake our sin and live our lives in a manner that pleases God. We should live with tender hearts that grieve over our sin and seek to repent so that our lives will bear much fruit. 
The attitude of mourning needs to become the perpetual posture toward the sin in our hearts. And Chris wrote this, Kingdom citizens possess a fundamental attitude of mourning and weeping over sin. If we are honest with ourselves, we must admit that mourning is not always, or even often, sadly, the attitude that accompanies our sin. So naturally, we need to ask, why do we find that more often than not, we tend to have an attitude of perhaps indifference or acceptance or even, God forbid, satisfaction over our sin? Perhaps if we can answer that question, it will provide a greater awareness and even sensitivity to our sin, which will result in an attitude of mourning. It should be our desire to reflect the following attitude that is described in our book. So Chris wrote this, True mourning as an internal anguish over sin experienced by true believers as they both embrace Scripture's teaching on the evilness of sin and willfully determine to properly deal with it. So I would say, if you don't grieve over your sin, you need to consider whether or not you know the Lord. Because a true believer, now obviously we know we don't grieve over all of our sins, and that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. But a true believer will grieve over their sin. So why do we not mourn over our sin to the degree that we should? Perhaps there are several reasons, and I just have a few here that I thought I would suggest. We maybe do not have an accurate view of sin. Perhaps we are blind to certain aspects of our sin. Perhaps we don't understand the strength and will of our sin. And lastly, on my little list, perhaps we are not aware of the depth of our sin. So actually yesterday, as I was just doing my daily reading, I'm in Luke right now, I read this account, and I thought, oh my goodness, this so beautifully goes along with what we're talking about. We've got to read this this morning. So if you don't mind to turn to Luke 7, we're going to read verses 36 through 48. And I will tell you that I am not going to go through and, and teach this passage to you this morning. This is simply part of the introduction, but I think you will see how that it connects <clears throat> um, what we are talking about here this morning. I was reminded of the woman who anointed Jesus with perfume and washed his feet with her tears. Her grief over her sin reflected her heart of repentance. So if you don't mind to join me, Luke 7, we'll start in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she bought brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, eh, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. 
So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. So as I was pondering this, I uh, went to a couple of commentaries, and one of my commentaries said this, the parable does not deal with the amount of sin in a person's life, but the awareness of that sin in his heart. So why did the woman mourn and cry and worship Jesus? Because she was aware of her great sin. Why did Simon the Pharisee not mourn, not even recognize Jesus? Because he was not aware of his sin. So what can we take out of this? In, in this account, both the woman and Simon were unconverted sinners in need of salvation. But only the woman was aware of her sin to the degree that she grieved over it and recognized her need for the salvation that only Christ could provide. Simon, on the other hand, was unaware of his sinfulness and thus experienced no grief, as I already said. I do believe there is an important principle we can extract from this biblical account. If we aren't aware of our sin, we won't mourn over it. We must accurately view our sin if we desire to reflect an attitude that mourns. So generally speaking, the majority of us probably do grieve over our sin. We hate it and wish to forsake it. We are zealous to put it off, to be rid of it, to abandon it forever. But sadly, we still so often find ourselves overtaken by it. So how do we cultivate a growing sensitivity to our sin that results in anguish and mourning over it? Like the woman who was so acutely aware of her sin, we need to grow in our own awareness of sin. The more aware we are of our sin against our holy God, the more we will mourn and seek to forsake it. So last week, as I was pondering, thinking, what, am I, what passage am I going to teach on? Which direction am I going to go with this? We had the conference, which was fantastic. And so I went and started browsing the book table, because this is what I always love to do, browse the book table, good resources. And I thought, you know, I wonder, maybe, they, maybe there's something here that would be helpful in studying for Bible study. So... Can you see the title? Knowing Sin. So I actually found several books and I ended up buying a couple of them. And the reason why I borrowed this is because it's, or I bought this is because it said on the back, it, it, one of the little title heads was Sin's Grief. I'm like, perfect. That sounds great. So I kind of flipped through it a little bit. I thought this looks like it'll be good. I proceeded to read this entire book 
And so what you're going to get today is just snippets. And I'm really going to kind of even go out a little bit on a limb because I'm not going to go through and teach through a passage of scripture like I tend to normally want to do. I am actually going to go through a lot of the things. Obviously, it's heavily based on scripture, so you're going to get that. But I am actually going to talk through some of the things that he discusses in here. So I am hoping and praying that it will be an incredible blessing to you because just as I was reading through that, I found myself encouraged, I found myself convicted, and just stirred up to want to live a holy life, to recognize my sin in so many areas that I'm blind to it. So, also, um, just on another note with this, um, he quotes lots of Puritans. Oh, author, thank you. Uh, so it's Knowing Sin, and the, mar- the author is Mark Jones. Yeah, I would recommend getting it. It's very good. So anyways, he actually quotes a lot of the Puritans. So I thought, well, we'll just carry on from the conference, right? And in the spirit of Tolbiki, we will just continue on the topics with the Puritans. <laughs> so some of the quotes you're going to see are from him. Some of the things that I'm going to say are just um, Mark Jones and how he's kind of Um, put things together. So we are going to begin with a very brief, very, very brief introduction to our remaining sin. We're still not even on your outline yet. We'll get there. But I feel like I have to lay a good foundation in order to get to these other things so that when we talk about some of these blind spots, we have the ability to grasp it a little more clearly. This is where I always get nervous because I'm like, okay, did I actually get all the little, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed so that you can actually track with where I'm going. So anyways, we are going to look at just a few things on the remaining sin in our hearts because that's important. We have to understand that we do still have sin. So in what is probably a very familiar passage from Romans that I'm sure you guys all know, the Apostle Paul describes his ongoing wrestle with sin. So if you would please turn with me again to Romans 7, we're going to read starting in verse 14. 15. The, Romans seven fifteen. Though believers have been given new hearts and a new nature, there is still remaining sin that must be mortified and put off. You are probably familiar with this description that Paul gives, but I'm still going to read it to stir you up by way of reminder. So Romans 7, starting in verse 15, he says this, For what I am doing... I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So here we go. First quote from our Puritan John Owen, deep thinker. He says this, There it dwells, he's talking of sin, and is no wanderer. Wherever you are, whatever you are about. This law of sin is always with you in the best that you do and in the worst. 
Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. When they are in company, when alone, by night or by day, sin is with them. There is a living coal continually in them, which, if it be not looked unto, will burn them and maybe consume them. Is this not how you feel about the remaining sin in your life? It's always there. I can never escape it. Not one thing that I ever do is is ever completely untainted by sin. So if we continue to look into Scripture and we look at the book of Galatians, Paul explains what is happening as we wrestle against sin. So in Galatians 5.17, he describes it like this. He says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. And remember what the flesh is. It's that remaining sin. And he says, it sets its desire against the spirit. Well, notice if you're looking at it, it's a capital S. It's talking about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit indwells us if we are believers. But that sinful flesh that remains is fighting against the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And then, it's, and then he goes on and he says, And the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. This is why we wrestle so greatly. And then the apostle Peter, he says in 1 Peter 2.11, he describes this wrestle as a war. So 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. There is a war continually going on in our hearts as we wrestle against sin. Now, when do we not experience a war? When we give in to the sin or when the Holy Spirit does not reside in our hearts. If we don't ever stop to think about this, we don't experience that wrestle then we need to question whether we know the Lord. So Mark Jones explains this. He says, We should never forget there is an enemy that walks around with us pretending very often to be our best friend while truly being our worst enemy. Indwelling sin is always ready to pounce. It does not simply dwell in us, but it is close at hand, aiming to disrupt our living to God. A Trojan horse remains in our heart with enemies inside ready to strike. Sin can attack at any moment. We can, like a king in a palace, fortify ourselves with many guards and protections, but we need to remember that no king is truly safe when his enemies are within his gates. That is our sin, the sin that remains, sin within our gates. He goes on to say, we get no holidays in the Christian life, no days off. We cannot even enjoy a minute when sin agrees to leave us alone. That does not mean that we are always sinning, but it does mean sin is always lurking in the shadows, ready to attack. So herein lies our dilemma. We are under a constant strain and wrestle against our sin. To overcome it, forsake it, and battle it in such a way as to win, we must be ever aware of it and incredibly sensitive to it, always ready to battle for the sake of pleasing our Savior. 
The difficulty is that sin is deceitful, aggressive, cunning, so we are not always aware of how easily we are overcome by it. In light of that, we're going to look at several ways sin trips us up, ways that sin stealthily enters through the back door, if you will. So what I've done is I've chosen four areas from our little book that I was telling you about that we are going to consider. And he actually addresses a whole lot of things that we're not going to have time to talk about this morning, other areas. So what he does is each chapter talks about a way, an area of sin that we wrestle with. So he has things like pride, envy, unbelief, manipulation, and selfishness. And we are only going to dig into four. And so, so originally we were going to dig into five. We're going to hope we get through four. Um, so anyways, because I got way too many notes here this morning. So if we have to cut it off, you'll understand why. But some of the ones that were high on my list, I will tell you, because I see this in counseling. I see it in my own heart. But things like envy. We do this as women really well with each other, right? We, we envy one another. But uh, it didn't quite make it to the list, so get the book. Another one that I see particularly, okay, this is really terrible. If you are a mother-in-law, I'm a mother-in-law. If you're a mother-in-law, manipulation can also tend to be high on the list, trying to get what you want from your daughter-in-law, from your kids, from your grandkids, whatever. So anyway, it didn't make it on here either, but good things to think about because sin is always there, and we need to begin to recognize the areas that we can tend to be blind to. So the ones we are going to talk about are participating in presumptuous sins, Number two, indulging in vain thoughts. Number three, practicing sins of omission. And number four, choosing sin over suffering. So A is participating in presumptuous sins. So to be presumptuous is to knowingly and willingly violate a set boundary. Applying this to God's standards revealed in his word Presumptuous sins simply involve any sin committed in willful violation of the standards we know quite well. Now, I will say that as we initially read that, probably the majority of say, well, I don't, if I know what God has said, I don't intentionally cross that line. I try not to do that. Well, this is exactly why we're going to talk about it, because I think there are ways that we do this that we don't even realize that we do this. So number one on your outline is willingly violating a set boundary. David prayed against committing this kind of sin in Psalm 19. First, he prays for forgiveness for hidden faults. Then he prays for strength to keep from committing presumptuous sins. So I'm just going to read. You can turn there if you want, but it's fast. Psalm 19, 12 and 13. He says this, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. So there's the first part of it. And then the second, in verse 13, he says, Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. So, back to our little book again. 
He says, many godly people have fallen victim to the sin of presumption, which is a warning to us all. None are entirely free from the guilt and danger of this type of sin. The Christian who sins presumptuously commits a willing provocation against God and expects a free return of mercy in exchange. Few sins are worse in the Christian life than presuming upon the grace of God. And you have no idea how badly I wish that we could just stop there and just go into grace because I taught a bunch on grace a couple of weekends ago. And this, it just so beautifully fits into that. We presume upon the grace of God. And we remember what Paul said in Romans 6, right? He says in verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? But what we don't realize is so often in our Christian life, we become hardened toward our sin to such a degree that we don't even realize that we are presuming upon the grace of God. We are expecting that he will forgive us because he always does. And so without even realizing it, we indulge in sin because we know he is a loving and caring God. So number two, taking advantage of God's grace. So this is what presumptuous sin is, taking advantage of God's grace. So the basic idea is simple. Presumption is a knowing willingness to disobey God. For the Christian, this includes presuming upon the grace of God so that in the sin, there is also the expectation of future mercy for the sin willingly committed. So he's just reiterating what I kind of already uh, mentioned to you. But he goes on and he says, Christians who sin presumptuously have a false confidence and both misunderstand and trivialize the mercy of God. They think they can willfully sin against God because he will be merciful and forgive them later. They abuse the mercy of God in Christ by their deliberate disobedience. So I would say that we don't often recognize that we have this perspective. We don't often, sorry, we do often live the truth of this, as I was saying earlier. So then he goes on and he gives this explanation. And I thought it's a great explanation, so I'm just going to go right along with it. But I think it helps us to understand exactly how we can actually indulge in this. So he says, consider three scenarios of someone driving. An electrician who sometimes stops for a few beers with his buddies and thinks nothing of getting behind the wheel over the legitimate limit of alcohol. Then consider a young web designer who stays up late gaming and usually fights nodding off during his morning commute. And then third, a physical therapist traveling to her home appointments habitually with her smartphone out and in use even for texting. Are any of these better than the others? All three constitute unfocused, impaired, illegal, and dangerous driving. All three people break the sixth commandment by disregard for the lives of themselves and others. Beyond this, they do it all the time and think that they, unlike others, are capable of 
staying safe. This is not skilled confidence, but presumptuous pride. They know it's wrong, yet they keep on doing it. In spite of the close calls they have had, they are also presuming upon God's providence and mercy to keep them safe, even if they should make a mistake. This day will be like any other, they think. Still, I need to stop doing this. It's madness, they say to themselves. And then get up the next morning and do what? Do it again. Nobody was on it anyways, so thank you. We could add to this scenario many, many other ones like it. Allowing ourselves to react in anger when we should, when we know we should be self-controlled. We do that, right? We give in to anger when we know we should be self-controlled. Saying harsh and unkind words when we know we should speak gently and patiently. Because we have become accustomed to God's grace, we take advantage of it. We know he won't strike us dead for our sinful attitude and actions, so we sin presumptuously. This kind of attitude keeps us from mourning over our sin. Willfully choosing to sin reflects a hardened heart, not one that is grieved over our sin. And so we have to constantly be evaluating our own hearts. Am I acting out in ways that are presumptuous? And I will tell you, okay, this is public confession here. But yesterday I was cleaning the Airbnb, and I thought it was going to be an easy clean. Two people, three nights. Shouldn't be a big clean. So I had planned my time accordingly and went over there and found that actually it was dirtier than what I had expected, which, of course, because I am sinful, I start to get mad because I didn't want to be over there. Now I'm rushed for time because the other guests are coming. And so Craig came over and I, you know, of course, to him. And this was going through my head the whole time, the whole time. I've, I've been studying all week on this. And as I'm talking to him, I said, I'm just sinning. And I realized presumptuous sin because I know that God is sovereign. I know that he has orchestrated this for my good. I know that it's an opportunity for me to respond rightly. And what have I done? I have just fully indulged in sin. And in that moment, my heart did not care. And that is the most grievous thing of all. When we find ourselves, even for a moment, that I want to sin right now. I want to be angry. So Craig left, and then I continued to repent for the next half an hour. (laughs) Praise God that he is so gracious that we can repent, that he invites us to repent, that he does forgive. But do you see how quickly we presume upon his grace? See, if I would have thought God would strike me dead for having that attitude, you can better believe I would have kept it much more self-controlled. But I know my God is a gracious God, and so I presume upon him to sin. We need to keep moving. So B, we indulge in vain thoughts. Matthew 15, 19, you're probably familiar with this, says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, 
and slanders. So notice that Jesus actually lists the evil and heart-induced thinking first before the other heinous sins. So I want to read it again so you can see the order here. He says, for out of the heart come what? Evil thoughts. And then he goes on to list murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. So it begins in the heart, and the heart produces what? Thoughts. And thoughts produce what? Actions. So we need to consider the thoughts that we are thinking. It is so important when you read, take every thought captive. That is a serious verse and instrumental to our ability to be sanctified. When we read in Romans and Ephesians that we are to renew our minds, it is absolutely vital to our sanctification that we take that seriously. But I don't think we always take it as seriously as we need to, and thus we don't mourn over our sin. So he goes on, Mark Jones goes on to say this, the immediate arising of evil, of an evil inclination, albeit without recognition, makes the sin, excuse me, makes the thought sinful. As Charnock argues, he says this, Charnock does, voluntariness is not necessary to the essence of a sin, though it be to the aggravation of it. So he says, we can still sin even if we didn't intend to sin, but he says, it can still aggravate it, make it worse. We must set certain boundaries for our thoughts and our failure to guard them is our responsibility before God and his word. Even when a thought springs up, as it were, without our formal consent, we cannot excuse ourselves if that thought is in violation of God's will. The Christian is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, from 2 Corinthians 10.5. When a flurry of sinful thoughts erupts in the mind, we cannot excuse ourselves, even if there is more aggravation in the sin, if we dwell on these thoughts and let them ruminate in our minds, instead of immediately mortifying them at their first rising. So number one on your outline, sinful thoughts reveal sin in our hearts. So this was actually a very helpful consideration for me because I have actually wrestled with this and I've wrestled with it even as I'm counseling. When a sinful thought pops into my head, is it sin? Or does it only become sin if I choose to dwell on it and act on it? This is really important for me to evaluate both personally and as a counselor and the same is for you guys. You interact with other people. Are we recognizing, understanding this both in our own hearts and as we communicate to others? Is it okay if wrong thoughts pop into my mind as long as I don't feed them and act on them? So he says this, the intention of the thoughts from the heart determines the character of the thought. The heart and mind are deceitful with many thoughts arising because we lack sufficient holiness to keep them from flowing in our hearts. So what is going on here? It is a heart issue. Whatever pops into our head is a result of what is in our hearts. So here is what he's saying. 
Our thoughts reveal what is already in our hearts. If a sinful thought pops into our minds, it is reflecting what is present in my heart. A sinful thought reveals sin in my heart. When we recognize the sin, it should cause us to mourn, which in turn should motivate us to repent of the sinful thought. So what do we do then? Clearly, we have sinful thoughts that pop into our head. We need to repent. So number two, we must immediately take captive and destroy sinful thoughts. And we need to recognize we are fully responsible for sinful thoughts that pop up into our minds unannounced, unawares. We are still responsible for that. And it is still sin before a holy God because it is simply revealing what is in my heart. Sin that remains. Sin that needs to be repented of. So he says this, while we should always seek to mortify the first rising of a sinful thought that happens, Goodwin, another Puritan, said that the more dangerous realm of sinful thoughts lies in the voluntary acts whereby we ponder and pour and muse upon things. Y'all done that? Oh yeah. Why do you suppose yesterday I was upset with the messy guest? because I pondered it and I thought about it and I cleaned it for a few hours instead of recognizing what it was and repenting of it initially when it came into my mind. Father, forgive me because you are sovereign and you have ordained this for me today so that I might trust you, so that I might work in a manner that glorifies you. Thank you, Lord. Instead, I was not thanking him for anything. I was complaining. Many of our thoughts are downright wicked, and we would be utterly ashamed if a video of such showed on, a, on YouTube. This should humble us to the core of our being, especially when we are tempted to lift ourselves up in comparison with others. In fact, we are filled with vain thoughts about ourselves, as Goodwin observed in the occasions when we are proud, self-confident, self-applauding, foolish, covetous, anxious. That's one that we tend to recognize perhaps a little more clearly or even just unclean. We are also commanded to bring every thought captive to obey Christ. And God does not command what he does not give. He gives us the grace to bring our thoughts into subjection to him so that we can obey Philippians 4.8. Remember that verse, what we should be thinking on. Paul writes this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. That's what should fill our minds. And when sinful thoughts pop up, we need to repent of them and fill our mind with everything that fits into the category that he has listed here, the various categories he has listed. That's what we do with our thoughts. If we allow our initial sinful, sinful thoughts to become a pattern of thinking, it hardens our hearts and keeps us from mourning over our sin. We must learn to recognize our sinful patterns of thought and become so sensitive to them that we grieve and turn from them rather than indulging in them and becoming hardened 
toward repentance. So moving on to C, we practice sins of omission. So sins of omission and commission, what are these? Sins of commission are the willful act of violating a principle or command of Scripture. Sins of omission, what we're going to be talking about, refer to the things we know we should do but neglect to do. So on the one hand, you tell your child, do not take the cookie out of the cookie jar. What does the child do? He goes and takes the cookie out. This is a sin of commission. He did what he shouldn't have done. The sin of omission is when we know we should be spending time in prayer every day and we neglect to do what we should be doing. So one of the best explanations in a succinct manner is from Ephesians 4, 22 and 24. So I'm going to read this. It says, in, ma- in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So we're taking that sin and we are laying it aside and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So that's going back to eliminating the vain thoughts, right? And you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That putting on, if we are putting on, we are not committing the sins of omission. But when we don't put on, that's when we are guilty of committing the sins of omission because we are not doing what Scripture has instructed for us to do. This is very serious, but I don't think we often recognize the seriousness of these instructions. The scriptures are quite clear that Christians not only must avoid sin, but also practice righteousness. We are instructed to put off sinful thoughts, words, actions, and patterns, but equally as important is the instruction to put on righteous living. So number one, we must not neglect to put on righteous living. So uh, Mark Jones goes on to explain the Christian life is both putting off and putting on. Our actual sins always involve omission because the violation of law neglects the positive precept of the commandments. If a husband speaks, so he gives an example here, which I think is helpful. If a husband speaks too harshly to his wife, he violates the seventh commandment. And such also involves his failure to speak to her in a gentle, faithful, loving manner of speech. Husbands, love your wives, Paul exhorts, and do not be harsh with them. Paul here commands the positive, love your wives, and forbids the negative, do not be harsh. Obviously, not being harsh is a form of love, but that love must go beyond a mere silence. So the argument, he says, I'm just going to shut my mouth so I don't say something wrong neglects the positive injunction of love. So on one hand, yeah, he's not now committing the sin of commission to speak harshly, but he's still being sinful because he is not striving to love as he is also commanded in Scripture. Sins of commission, especially where there are actual sins, are also sins of omission. So Thomas Manton, another Puritan, observed, when we look into these things, we find both in every actual sin, both commission and omission. When we commit anything against the law of God, we omit 
our duty, and the omitting of our duty reveals that something is preferred before the love of God. That's the key issue. Something else is preferred over that love of God. And that was what our whole conference was about, the worship of God. We don't want to love things over our love and worship of our Savior. Similarly, Spurgeon said, in a certain sense, all offenses against the law of God come under the head of sins of omission. For in every sin of commission, there is an omission, an omission at least of that godly fear which would have prevented the disobedience in the first place. Sins of omission open the way for sins of commission to take place. I know I'm saying that word an awful lot. I hope you're keeping (laughs) track of what I'm saying here. Matt goes on to say this. They lie open to gross sins that do not keep the heart tender by daily attendance upon God. If a man do not that which is good, he will soon do that which is evil. So number two, neglecting righteous duties leads to a sinful life. So certain duties really are non-negotiable in the Christian life, and their omission will prove fatal to our walk with God. And I'm just going to list some of these things really quickly. You already know what they are. But we are commanded to pray continually, to pray daily, continual repentance for our sin. We are to read God's word. We are to study God's word. We are to memorize God's word. We are to meditate on God's word. We are to engage faithfully in corporate worship. We could continue to list many things here. These are the most obvious. But we need to practice the spiritual disciplines as we refer to them now so that we are not more inclined to be sinful. The only way we will continually cultivate an attitude of mourning over our sin is if we are diligently practicing the put-ons for godly living. To neglect time in the word and prayer will lead to a lack of sensitivity to our sin and even even a hardening of our hearts. And that's what we want to avoid. Because as we come to the word, who do we see in the pages of scripture? We see a loving, gracious God who sent his son to be our savior. And then we see what he lays out for us to do so that we might please him for the gift that he has given us. If we neglect to do all these things that we are commanded to do in scripture, we will naturally end up living in a manner that is sinful and ungodly and will harden us and we will not be mourning over our sins. So the last one here on our list is choosing sin over suffering. And you can see I've got a lot of stuff on a lot of little fill-ins under that. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I am going to try and see if I can go through uh, this a little bit quickly because I do think that this is important as well. And basically what I'm going to do is you're going to fill in the blank and I'm just going to read the scripture that goes along with it because I don't have time to explain it all. But anyway, we'll get there in a sec. So Jeremiah Burroughs, another Puritan, discusses an issue that may be framed in the following question. Faced between choosing the smallest sin versus the greatest affliction, which should the Christian choose? 
we would likely admit that choosing the affliction would be better than choosing the sin. However, when we are actually faced with an affliction that causes us suffering and pain, we often choose to sin by inwardly resisting the affliction or by willingly sinning to escape the affliction. So here's what Burroughs says about it. Any affliction is to be chosen rather than any sin. There is more evil in any sin, the least sin, than in the greatest affliction. And this is exactly why I chose this topic right here. Because we, I don't think, generally think of sin to this degree. And we don't oftentimes put our afflictions side by side with sin and go, okay, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, which one am I going to choose, the affliction or the sin? No, we wouldn't go eeny, meeny, miny, mo, because so often we say, I'm going to choose the sin. It's that easy. I will sin because I don't like this pain. I don't like this circumstance. Yesterday, you can just keep going back to the same old sin, right? So yesterday, what did I choose? It wasn't a huge affliction, but it certainly crossed my will, right? I didn't want to have to do the extra cleaning. So instead, I was willing to sin because I didn't look at it and say, this is from the hand of a loving God. So when my will was crossed, I chose sin rather than choosing to please God in the middle of what I didn't like, the circumstance I didn't choose. So we're going to consider the differences between both the afflictions and the sin. And just like I said, very briefly, so number one, benefits of affliction. Because I want you to see just very quickly that afflictions, trials, suffering, whatever you want to call them, those things, yes, in our view, are bad, but God allows them into our hearts and into our lives because those are the things that he will use to mold us and make us into the beautiful image of his son. And so the affliction is not something we should run from. Now, there may be people who sin against us, and in that there is sin. But on our part, just because we experience an affliction does not mean that there needs to be sin on our part. We choose the sin. So A, affliction is temporary. 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So he says, even though now, for how long? A little while. Our life is a vapor. It's going to be over so quickly. And so will all of our afflictions and suffering. B, affliction produces the character of Christ in us. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So affliction produces the character of Christ. Why do we not embrace it more? Because we love self so much. We don't want to experience pain and suffering. See, affliction confirms that we are God's children. Hebrews 12, 7 says this, It is for discipline that you endure. 
God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So oftentimes, uh, God does bring affliction as a form of discipline. Now, not punitive, but so that we would grow, right? Well, when we experience these afflictions, we should not be downhearted and downcast because that is the very thing that often confirms that we are his children. D, affliction reveals God's faithfulness. So Psalm 119, 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We learn about the character of God, that he is faithful as we experience afflictions. We can be assured that, I'm not sure who this quote is, I think it's a Puritan, but I forgot to write it down. We can be assured that in our afflictions, we are being tried by a faithful God. Afflictions are likewise a sign of his faithfulness, which sometimes shows his fatherly discipline. So E, affliction teaches us God's way. So Psalm 119.71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Memorize that verse if you don't already know it. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Learn it, meditate, think on it until you believe it. It was good for me that I was afflicted. So then now we're going to move. So that's just really quick. Afflictions in a nutshell. There's some benefits to them, right? Now we've got to quickly move to number two, the destruction of sin. Sin is quite the opposite of afflictions. Consider for a moment that it was sin that caused Jesus to go to the cross. Had there never been any sin, Christ would not have gotten needed to go to the cross, right? Burroughs raises the issue. If a man might be a means to save the whole world if he would commit one sin, if he could save the whole world from eternal torments by the commission of one sin, you should suffer the whole world to perish rather than commit one sin. There is so much evil in sin. So remember the whole question of, okay, so the Nazis are coming to your door and there's people hiding downstairs and they ask you, are you hiding people? Do you say yes and be truthful or do you say no to protect the people? What do you do? We would never ask that question if we truly understood how evil sin is. Because we would automatically know we must be truthful because we are accountable to a holy God. So we speak truth and God is responsible for whatever happens after that. And we know stories where such things took place and for whatever reason the guards left and they didn't believe them. God is not limited to accomplishing his purposes through our sin. May it never be that we would choose sin to protect God or to protect other people. Sin is so wicked. So some of the things with sin then. A, unrepented sin leads to eternal death. So Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. B, 
Sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. So the sin of the Israelites kept them from that relationship with God. C, sin requires God's wrath as punishment. Ephesians 2, 3 among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And D, sin puts us at odds with God. So Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. God hates sin, and when we choose to indulge in it, it puts us at odds with God. So three, affliction does not permit us to sin. Romans 6, 13 says this, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Even in our afflictions, we are not to present our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. Choosing suffering over sin is choosing to live like our Savior. When we walk as he did in the power of the Holy Spirit, we trust our God and count on his help. So he goes on to explain, this is not to understate the difficulty of the choices that come before God's people. So he gives some examples, which I will quickly explain or read. A single pregnant woman contemplating an abortion is faced with this question, choose sin, murder, or affliction, public shame, and economic hardship. A father struggling to feed his family is tempted to steal. Does he choose a small sin, hopefully without detection, or the hunger of his children? Does a child speak truthfully about recklessly breaking the window with discipline to follow or lie to escape the punishment? These are the types of decisions many fa are faced with each day. Only by looking to God in Christ can we ever say, I will choose affliction over the smallest sin. When our eyes leave the Lord, we drift to living according to our own rules and dictates, which choose the path of least resistance, which of course is sinning. Such an unwise choice initiates a confrontation against the God who graciously loves and saves us. So not only do we sin to escape the affliction, but I would add that often we sin in our affliction as well. We dislike whatever the circumstance is the Lord has brought into our path, so we rebel in our hearts. We are impatient. We grumble and complain. We are envious of others who don't share our struggles. We become very self-focused, feeling sorry for ourselves even. We become discontent and ungrateful. When we focus more on our affliction than we do on pleasing God, we fail to mourn over our sin. If our greatest desire is to escape the pain and suffering or the consequences of the affliction, we will lose sight of our need to please God in the midst of the trial. 
Suffering should reveal sin in our hearts and cause us to mourn. It should not be an excuse to be sinful. Our sin should be forsaken, repented of, and put far from us. So, kind of bringing it all around, if we desire to stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, we need to be aware of our sin so we can properly mourn over it and turn from it. We do not want to waste the lives that God has given us. He has given us the opportunity to live for his glory, to be a light in a dark world, to please him, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We do not want to waste that opportunity. If we are not aware of our sin, we will not mourn over it, therefore we will not repent over it. And we will be saved, yes, to personally not walk through the fire, but our works will be burned up. We do not want that. So let's not waste the time, the lives that God has given us, and recognize and be so careful, so so sensitive to our sin. And one last quick verse, Romans 5.20, just as a closing encouragement. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Not so that we would use it as an excuse to sin, but because when we sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, with the Father. His grace is greater than our sin. Let's pray.